Travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Wow. We've been living in Asia for 41 collective years between the two of us. We came as young men and are now well-worn, traveled, and traversed expats through and through. But despite spending so much of our lives in Asia, Trevor and I are still amazed by how often there's something wild just around the corner on a weekly, if not sometimes daily basis. Life continues to amaze, and these experiences make for good stories. In this episode, we're going to share some wild stories about life living and traveling Asia in the fourth part of our tantalizing travel tale series. Get a comfy seat, pour yourself a drink, and get ready to be transported through Asia. As usual, I'm Scott Coates, still in Bangkok, Thailand, and you still are? Still in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, although sometimes I'm elsewhere in Cambodia, but yes, we're both kind of pinned down in our respective neighboring countries um, but it's great that we still get to use this podcast to to talk pretty regularly. So I'm appreciative of that. Yeah, it definitely keeps us connected, doesn't it? I mean, this actually has been the main source of talking we've had in the last year. Yeah, you know, and it's great to catch up before and after and kind of tell some current travel tales that are happening because you and I have been getting around Thailand and Cambodia a bit. But, you know, I'm, I'm curious about that, actually, because in the introduction here, you talked about that these could be stories about living and traveling in Asia, but I kind of stuck with the title and went with just travel tales. Okay. So there's certainly lots of tantalizing tales from Trevor's life in Asia, <laughs> um, but I, I kind of, I tend to overlook those, you know, like some of the New Year's Eve boat parties and like, we've had some crazy things happen to us, even you and I together, but but those aren't exactly travel stories. So I kind of try to stick with the travel stories, but uh, I'm curious to see what you've come up with for iteration number four. I'm the same as you. They are travel stories. I actually didn't think to share travel or, or sorry, tales of life. So they are all travel. A bit of a note, mine are all kind of dark because you and I originally thought for this episode, maybe we would talk about like horrible things that happened or scary things that happened. And then I made a note of a bunch put them in the show notes, and you came up with just some cool stories, I think. But I haven't read yours because I, I want to be surprised. So to the listener, I'm sorry, mine are a wee bit dark, but uh, it blows my mind that we've been this long in Asia, that I'm the age I am. I remember when I first moved here, meeting a guy who'd been here seven years, and I thought, wow, like seven years? This guy is an old pro. And now I'm at 21 years, and you're at about 20, right? Yeah, 20 years in May. So that's just shortly after this episode is going to air, I assume. Incredible. And just before we kind of do a rehash of the other tantalizing travel tale shows, just a reminder to everyone listening that Trevor and I do this uh, for the love of travel and the love of sharing. We cover all costs on our own, but we get help from our patrons and we love them. So you can go to patreon.com, search for Talk Travel Asia and sponsor the show from as little as a dollar a month, all the way up to hundreds of dollars 
$5 per month. Patrons get some special little things every couple of weeks. We'll share a little special patron-only episode, sometimes photo galleries. We just shared a cool video of cycling Bangkok's back lanes through Chinatown. So please support the show. Show us some financial love, help keep it on. And most importantly, whatever you're listening to this on, can you please give us a review? Click the stars, say something positive. We'd appreciate it. So Trevor, you were good enough to kind of recap where this tantalizing travel tales journey started. What did we talk about on episode, the first one? And and what episode was that? That was episode number 13. So if you're listening on iTunes or SoundCloud or something, you can go to our website, talktravelasia.com, and we'll have links to all of our old episodes because there's some really good stories on here, I think. You know, in, in episode 13, you told the legend of the gold monkey, which I think is a great story. Do you still have the monkey? The monkey is in my living room next to the TV. And <laughs> when I read this on the summary, I laughed out loud because it is a great story. I told the story about uh, here in Cambodia that was like more than a decade old when when a bus drove off with my bag in it and I, I didn't even see the bus leave and I had to chase after it. That was pretty exciting. Uh, and then in Tantalizing Travel Tales 2, that was episode number 25. Yep. And uh, you told the story about when we drove in a tuk-tuk together. You drove the tuk-tuk with me and Erica and some other people uh, in Bangkok. That was a great night out. And I was probably over the legal limit and should not have been driving any motorized vehicle, but the driver was more drunk than us and quickly agreed that it was better that I drove. Yeah, he did. That was hilarious. <laughs> and then I had another story about a bag again. And this is when we, uh, my, my ex-girlfriend Nat and I went to the Similan Islands and, and our bag mysteriously disappeared from the island that was kind of a fun story too yeah really funny and then i see i had one called mouse digging under a door and that was in phuket staying at a hotel and a giant mouse like a nuclear mouse was or rat probably was trying to literally dig under the carpet and the door to get in my hotel room so and then what was well like on on episode 13 you told a mouse story too so you told a mouse story in episodes one and two and i that's right i told a bag story in, in episodes one and two and then we got into tantalizing travel tales part three that was episode 40 what did we talk about on that one you know that one was interesting because we only covered four stories so i think we went into a lot more detail on two different stories some of the earlier ones we did a lot of different stories um and then an episode 40 you, you told some story about some some travel traveler's tummy that i think mm -hmm. uh is quite shocking. And yeah. then you tell the story about a car chase in, in Mumbai. That was a really fun story. Scariest travel almost I've had. That was a rough one. And I noticed a theme here. I've had two stories about toilets, two stories about mouse or rats. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, I, I told a story about uh, getting when my boat got stranded out on the low tide on Kopratong, uh, the Golden Buddha Island and the Andaman coast of Thailand. That was a crazy day. I love that story. And then it says, which way do we go? Oh, I think that was a story from New Zealand, which is a little bit outside of our Asia range. But I think that was when we, me and some friends went trekking out in Milford Sound and uh, we, almost, we, we got lost and we almost got trapped in the mountains by a snowstorm. And yeah. And you're, I think, a, a much better natural storyteller than I. So I think your stories are probably going to be better than mine. And I certainly know there's going to be more detail and so forth. Mine are pretty short, maybe a little disgusting at times uh, and a little sad at times. But anyway, I think we're going to get a big variety. So do you mind if I just jump in with a, with one to kind of warm us up? Just to, it's a prime. Yeah, warm us up with something fun. 
Okay, so I think the year was maybe 1995. I had been backpacking for a year. Started in Southeast or Japan, Southeast Asia, month in New Zealand, and seven months or eight months, something like that, maybe even longer in Australia, working as a DJ. And on the way back, I had to hub it through Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. I remember hearing about Koh Panga, which is famous for the full moon party. And I thought, you know what? I'll take a bus up there because I actually met this other Canadian guy at a guest house in KL who had just come from there. And I think he had to come across the border for a visa run or something like that. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm staying at Rainbow Bungalows on uh, Panga. And I think he said you can share a bungalow with me or something, which... I mean, mm-hmm. only makes sense if you're, you know, 19 years old or something. Like, yeah, why would you or, not yeah. spend a couple more dollars on your own? So anyway, I take buses on my own up to Suratani in southern Thailand. I get over to the island. And I remember being in the back of a Songtao, which is a truck with two boards in the back. Sun's just coming up. And it had hearing chickens and everything smelled exotic. And I saw this little sign for rainbow bungalows and I walked around and this guy got up and he, he cracked out a joint and I didn't really smoke weed at the time and had an incredible week. And we went over to Samui for a couple of days at the end. And that last night we had some seafood and then I had to early in the morning, grab a boat off the Island, back to the mainland, getting a bus from Suratani heading back towards Kuala Lumpur. And it all went wrong. And so I'm on, you know, your typical probably 30 seat or something like that coach bus. And I just start to feel horrible. Like I'm getting a fever quickly. I'm sweating buckets. My stomach starts to go. Guts are grumbling. And then I start to really think, oh no, like I think I might throw up. And I ask somebody like on the driver or something, how long till we're stopping? And we're not stopping for a couple hours. And I go to go to the toilet and there's a chain and a padlock around the toilet so the toilet is absolutely closed so now i'm in those you know hot and cold sweats you, you i mean beating out of it and then in the corners of my mouth i just start suddenly tons of saliva i realize that this is going to happen and as i'm sort of scrambling to find a bag anything to puke in i just sort of puke all over myself and i'm kind of uh. like holding up a shirt. I'm trying to stop it, but it's just all over me. And by that point, I had to sit in it for about 30 minutes. And I felt so bad for the other passengers. And some nice woman, I think, brought me a towel or something at a point and got off of the rest stop and tried to clean myself up and tried to change clothes. But yeah, I think anyone travels a significant amount of time ends up either with the, with the runs or you puke, but like being literally stuck in a bus where the toilet's locked with a chain and no option was was horrifying and i mean that's geez that's 27 years ago and i'm still feeling awkward and uncomfortable recalling it right now so i'm not so sure that was the equivalent of the opening band that we maybe should have started with but that's a good warm-up uh story hey you know though everybody has that story and and in my opinion you might have almost been lucky that door was locked because sometimes you don't want to know it's in that bathroom you don't want to be in there they're pretty bad sometimes. perhaps but wearing it on yourself isn't <laughs> too good either and then i had to sit in that seat for the rest of the way to kuala lumpur after so yeah, I wasn't the best guest on the bus. So how about you? I think you have a really good story about what a trip to Sumatra. 
Yeah, it's funny how these are in chronological order or something. Because this was in 1996, and this was my first trip to Asia. I was 25 years old. I had already spent a month in Bali and a month in Thailand, and I had just traveled down just past you there uh, through Suratani and to to the Malaysian border. But I went to Georgetown. Uh, which is on the northwest coast of Malaysia. And uh, from there, I got on a high-speed ferry to Medan in Sumatra. Have you ever been to Medan? I have not, but I always heard that if Southeast Asia was going to have an enema, that it would probably be in Medan. No, I don't know. I mean, it was my first time to to a place like that. And it was my first time to Asia, of course. And I'd been to Bali already. But Medan is a is like a big Muslim city, you know, and and it was so alien. And this is 1996. So, I mean, there was no other. I mean, there were some backpackers going through there. Sure. But I didn't see any other people, you know, especially like scruffy looking blonde surfer guys like I was because I was going to Sumatra because, you know, it might not have been famous with most people back in 96. But the, the surfers were already aware of Sumatra and some of the islands off of the West Coast. Okay. Uh, and and I, I harbored some fantasy that I might get out there and be able to find a board or something. But uh, otherwise, I had gone because there's a orangutan rehabilitation center in northern Sumatra. Uh, that has become quite famous now. Even Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio has like promoted it. Do you know about the Orang Asli? No, not the Orang Asli, the Bukit Luang. Yeah. Yeah. I've been hoping to get there and Sumatra has eluded me so far, but I have read about it. Yeah. So, so I got to Medan on this high speed catamaran and, and it was just such a disorienting place. And I, I got a room for the night there. And that was the first time I heard like the call to prayers for the, the, the Muslims in the city in the afternoon. And it was just such a surreal kind of experience. Um, so then I found the bus station and, and no one spoke any English. And, you know, my pronunciation of Bukit Luang was probably not as, I don't even know if I'm spelling I definitely didn't say Bukit, you know, but I, I finally made my way up to, to Bukit Luang and it's this awesome place. And again, like it, it's probably much more different now built up and, and whatnot. But back then in 96, it was uh, this really cool, funky little guest houses on the riverside. It's amazing. It's so beautiful. And I was like, so we were going to do some trekking. Well, we, uh, I ended up trekking with this uh, European girl. Um, but before that, uh, the, the people at my guest house told me about this bat cave. And we'll have Google Maps link on the show notes because I already started uh, pinning some of these locations on a Google map so that our listeners can uh, see the places that we're talking about on, on one map. But I, I saw the bat cave there. And when I was walking to the bat cave, there was like this monkey fight. And, and I heard all this screaming. And there was like a hundred monkeys and they were chasing this monkey through the trees and somebody caught up with him and threw him out of the tree. And then all these monkeys jumped on top of him and started beating the crap out of him. And they were all screaming. And I'm like hiding behind a tree, like 20, 20 meters away from them. Just being like, please don't see me. Please don't see me. Cause I just imagined like they were all going to turn on me next. And, and it was kind of my first experience with monkeys. And there was like a big monkey gang fight uh, right in this forest I was walking through. But we ended up doing the the, the orangutan visit and, and the trek from there. And it was pretty cool because they have orangutans that, ha- that were formerly uh, owned as pets. And then they rehabilitate them so that they can release them into the wild. And then the wild orangutans or the, the, the released orangutans they mate and they have baby orangutans that grow up in the forest there. And it was amazing because you're just like walking kind of through this bamboo forest, like up kind of a hill and, and there's orangutans in the trees all around you. Like they, they spend most of their times in the trees, but there's like 10 orangutans just like 
all up in the trees all around you and they could easily just grab your backpack and lift you up off the ground and and we fed like a little baby orangutan some bananas and it was just such a, a an unbelievable experience it didn't end there the monkey fights were only the beginning it was like the halfway of the trip and stuff yes yeah, so we, we did an amazing trek that day she the girl i was with she and i had hired a guide um for the day and then some other guys were going to hike out to a spot where we would camp and set up a camp, which was like a lean to really, it was just like a, a wooden lean to that we, we slept inside of, but they brought food and built a fire for us and stuff out there. But so, but before we got out to our first campsite, just early in the morning that day, she slipped and she punctured her arm, like a sapling, like Ooh. jammed into her arm. And, and it was kind of, it was kind of gnarly. Yeah. So, so we decided even then and there that we were just going to get to the first campsite, spend one night. And then, and then we were going to trek out the next day because, because it needed some attention you right. know so yeah. so the guy was like well she can't walk very fast so there's no trail or anything he's like just climb up this hillside until you get to the top and then he's like and then just follow the ridge you know as it goes to your right and stay on top of that ridge until it starts to like go down again and he's like and then turn 90 degrees right and just go straight down the hill until you get to a river and and you'll be you'll see like a fork in the river with a big rock in the middle of it and and, and just wait for us there why, why did they have to go ahead of you? No, no. He he told me to go ahead because they oh. were going to be walking slowly because he wanted to make sure she could handle the, the trek because it was kind of challenging. This sounds like a terrible idea. You never split up. You never split up, Trevor. Yeah. So he's like, okay. So I, yeah, and I was nervous. And and when I got to the top and I was walking, like to, even just to get up the hill, you had to like use, like hold on to tree trunks and branches and climb up this hillside. And then when I was up the top there, there was wild gibbons, like chasing each other, like hooting and going through the canopy. I was like, I guess I turn right here. And then I went down and I actually found the river with the fork in it and I could swim out to the rock and I was jumping off the rock into the river and swimming around. It was great. And then we finally got to our campsite all together. And then uh, she admitted to me that she had smuggled some hashish from Ooh. India through Malaysia into Ooh. Indonesia. Yeah, I know, Whoa. which is crazy. She had it in like a little jewel, like a necklace, like a thing came out and stuff like that. So she told me that because she needed it for medication. Like she was kind of still in shock even, you know? Really? Um, so we had some amazing like Sumatran coffee cooked on a campfire and this amazing campfire food. And 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 we smoked some of her hash and enjoyed like an amazing night in the Sumatran jungle. And then, and then we had to like uh, cut the trip short, which was really cool. Um, but from there, I, I got, I decided I was going to go to Lake Toba. So the, if you look on the Google map, there's this massive lake in, in like north central Sumatra with an island in the center of it. And the entire lake is, is a volcanic crater. And it's insane. It's like I just rode on like a little local bus. Again, I had no idea even where I was going on, on the if you looked on a map because there's no Google phones or maps or anything. But on a map, it was like 60 kilometers. But this is like big volcano country and the roads are really steep and windy. And it took like six hours or something to get like these 60 miles that I, I needed to go. The bus, like it was so crowded and I didn't have a seat and, and it was too low for me to stand up. So I just sat on the floor for, for most of the trip, which might've been good because those roads are so sketchy. Like I probably didn't even want to see what was out the windows, you know, but I ended up getting a seat next to this guy and he had a box and he had baby chickens inside of his box. And I'd never sat next to a guy with baby chickens on a bus, you know? 
So that was kind of cool. And then eventually, like, I, I found where I should get off the bus. And it was, like, on this hillside overlooking the, this volcanic lake. And and I had to walk. God, like, it was really far. But I found some fruit cellar. And I got champu. Champu is a type of fruit that I don't even know. Maybe it's called a rose apple. Champu is called a rose apple, yeah. Yeah, champu. I, that was the first time. I Maybe I had it for my first time in Thailand. So I knew to, to, to get some when I saw it in Sumatra. And they had rambutan and passion fruit. And I remember just, like, gorging myself on all this cheap fresh fruit as i was walking down the hillside uh to this lake and then i got a room right on the lake and there was like no people there it was really weird but like my door to my bedroom just opened and then i could run straight out and jump like right into the water that's great it was beautiful yeah and i i met some foreign guy some foreigner because i remember he and i went to go check out some like traditional local indigenous people longhouses that were down the road a ways and it was so hot and he and i were like walking on this dirt road in the middle of nowhere we had no idea how far it was and i started uh doing the the walls ice cream truck song the do 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 yeah and he's like come on he's like don't do that don't do that right and then i'm like oh my god i hear the song and he's like come on and and i'm like no i hear the song and then out of nowhere over the hill the walls ice cream truck motorbike guy comes driving up and we made a stop and we ate like three or four ice creams each i see that i've been going on this i timed this because i didn't want to go too long in my story but it's been like 10 minutes already and and then the greatest haggling experience of my life occurred next so maybe we can save that for another episode maybe we talked about it on the shopping i bet we did a shopping episode and we talked about when i I bought this yeah it was like a shaman's staff from the local people who lived at Lake Toba there. And I had to haggle with this woman who was working in her rice field next to like the only souvenir shop within a hundred miles, I think. And it was an amazing haggling experience where like I would leave the store and start walking down the road and she would go back to her rice field. And then I'd be like, come on, we got to be able to make a deal. And we went back and forth like that for, for quite a while. And I got a pretty amazing souvenir. So I, that it was a spontaneous trip to Sumatra. I, I didn't plan it. That was my first trip to Asia. And, and it was possibly the highlight of my trip. Like every, every place I went in Sumatra was amazing. The people were amazing. The orangutans, the wildlife, everything was. Yeah, that's pretty epic. And to choose that area is your first trip to Asia. Actually, why did you choose to go to Sumatra? What, you said 96? Yeah, well, it was 96. And, and again, I, I bought a ticket to Bali. I wanted to go to Bali for a month to like surf. And then I got a ticket to Bangkok and then I had a ticket from Singapore to Perth. So I really had no plan from, from Bangkok at, until Singapore, except I knew I had to somehow get from Bangkok to Singapore. And, and so when, and I was like camping and hitchhiking and stuff like that. And I remember I camped down the entire East coast of, of Malaysia, like on beaches and stuff. Right. So I was pretty like crazy hippie. And so like when I was on Georgetown and I was like, what, you can just get a boat to like Sumatra. I was just like, all right. And so I went for like, like 10 days or something like that and just cruised around a bit. That's pretty wild. Well, mine's a lot shorter mine's a lot different. And it came to mind just thinking about, yeah, starting to come to Asia. And I was, I think, gosh, how old was I? I feel like I was maybe 20 and I was going to set off for that trip around the world, backpacking for a year. I was flying with Malaysia Airlines. So the same trip where I puked on myself at the end of the trip on the bus, my first stop was Japan for a week. And this was a guy, I was 19. I was 19. This was a guy who didn't eat Asian food. Like I was a picky eater. And a week before we went, I went with my parents to like a Canadian Chinese restaurant because I thought, okay, well, I'm going to Asia town. I'm going to have to eat some Asian food. I better try this out. So I tried some out 
And the first stop was Tokyo for a week at the start of a year long trip. And I was traveling with a girl named Tyler. She was the roommate of an ex-girlfriend of mine. And it was going to start again with, with Tokyo for a week and then off to Kuala Lumpur, Singapore, New Zealand, and Australia. So have no idea. And I remember I had sent a fax, I believe a fax to, you know, <laughs> a guest house or a youth hostel in Tokyo, because this was pre-email. To, to secure a room for a couple nights. So I had like a phone number and an address. And I think I had somehow wired money, but I hadn't actually had any response. So all I knew was when we got to Tokyo, I was going to have to try and find this place that I'd sent some money to. And that might have been a fax. And, and I was pretty worried about it. Again, never been to Asia. And on the flight over, we were sitting next to this Japanese guy named Tommy, who had lived in LA for a couple of years probably a couple of years older than me was going home to see his family, but he was very Americanized. And I don't know if he had become that way naturally. I kind of felt like he was maybe making a bit more of an effort to be American than he was, but really nice guy. And by the time we land, he's like, Hey, look, I'll, I'll give the place a call for you. I'll help get you on the right train to this guest house. So I'm like, great. So we get there. He, he finds, I guess, a payphone at that time and calls, and there's no booking, there's no reservation, they're full, no room, not happening. So start of a year trip, I'm terrified. This Tyler girl and I are standing there and, and he doesn't really have any too many other ideas. We're really on a budget. I seem to remember him asking some airport staff if they had any recommendations. No one really did. And, and bless his heart, he called his parents and I guess convinced him. And the conversation I remember went on for a good five minutes. So I got the feeling that they weren't super receptive to the idea of two random Canadians coming to their house. But he's like, okay, my parents have said you can come and stay with us for, for, for a few days. Great. And it was a Friday at rush hour. And we literally had that experience of getting the white gloved pusher shoving you in to squeeze into the subway with big backpacks. Like I'm traveling for a year long backpack Canadian flag on it. And this is the first Asia first Tokyo experience getting rammed into the subway. And stood there the whole ride took about an hour and a half so he narita airport's a long way from downtown anyway so we had to like head towards downtown then cross to the western side of tokyo and it went on and on and on and i'm just sort of looking around this train and one of the first impressions that i still think of as one of my favorite travel memories is there was a guy looked like a salary man worn out exhausted was on the train for about an hour kind of looked at each other a couple times and just as he went to get off, he looked at me and said, thank God it's Friday. And <laughs> I just busted out laughing. So anyway, we finally end up at, at Tommy's parents' house. Even now that I've been to Japan five or six times, I realized like this was a super proper stereotypical Japanese family. The mom was, I mean, she was in mom clothes, the, you know, the apron, she'd been making dinner. And her, his dad was sitting in a big, deep metal bathtub that I've learned on subsequent trips. A lot of Japanese, A, they really like baths, but they'll have what would look small, like as in not long, but very deep bathtub. And I think we stayed with them for about three days. And every time we, every night we come home for dinner, the dad would be sitting in the bathtub and we'd sort of see him and he would obviously be well into a number of whiskey and sodas yeah. and like red faced and he'd eat, he'd, like Scott-san, he'd yell to me yeah. and he would eat dinner after us. That was the routine. We'd eat dinner. Mom would prepare a great dinner. 
And then dad would get out of the tub. She'd serve him dinner. And then he seemed to think it was really great to have a couple drinks with me because the son didn't really drink. So he'd have a couple drinks with Scotto-san. And then they managed to find us a guest house hostel kind of deal after a few days. And Tommy was nice enough to take us down with his sister and put her to, you know, anyone heading off on that first big trip as a young person, especially to somewhere as different as Japan was for a guy from Canada, you don't end up having that room. The reservation isn't there. Like things are so much easier now with apps and, and internet and stuff, but that really saved us. And a few years later, when I came back to Thailand for a visit, I went through LA and I stayed with Tommy for a couple of nights and I haven't had contact with him now for probably like 24 years, but man, I owe that guy and his family something someday. I wouldn't know how to get in touch with him, but that was a really great way to start a year trip and a really great initial impression of Japan. That's yeah, that's great. And that's a good first place to go to. I imagine as well. I, I'd like to, I thought about sharing one or two of my old Tokyo stories because I've really only been to Tokyo and, and I went there when I was a bit younger as well. So I think it's a good place to to introduce yourself to Asia. And I thought it was funny because you said you weren't really like an Asian food eating kind of guy back then. So have At you all. had sushi? Had you ever had sushi no. before you went? No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> Did you have sushi while you were in Japan on that trip? I, I don't remember having it. I can't imagine that I would have been comfortable enough or ballsy enough to do it. I do remember we found sets, you know, that were about $10 Canadian where you'd get gyoza, yeah. which I'd never seen or had, thought it was incredibly exotic, wow. some miso soup, probably, you know, some ramen and a, and a bowl of like garlic fried rice and pretty much ate that every day because I realized like I can eat this and it's about the cheapest thing. And I ended up at McDonald's a couple of times too. All right. Well, you know, I just noticed now that this sort of is a living in Asia story. Yeah. Cause this isn't, it, it is and it isn't. So like for, for those who have listened to the show for a while, like I spent many years as a travel writer and uh, early in my travel writing days, I did lots of little different jobs and stuff. So I, once I worked for travel fish, actually I did some travel fish work uh, around Asia, but uh, Stuart, he's been on our show before. That's uh, right. Great guy. Travel travel travelfish.org which is a great website and it's because this is how comprehensive like the the content is is reviewed and updated and everything so so i did this twice that i basically lived on kaosan road for about That's a week cool. or, or so yeah yeah so at, at least twice i've done this once for travel fish maybe twice for travel fish and once for travel dojo which is a, a startup uh, website travel app that, that i was working on for a while right and uh yeah, so it's just that like like Kaosan Road is like the the ground zero of backpackers in Asia, basically. Yeah, the decompression chamber. Alex Garland called it right. Yeah, yeah, in the in the beach. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so Kaosan Road and Scott has posted like a video or, or some photos from from there recently because now it's yeah, a ghost town, right? Yeah, we just filmed but, but, a quick video walking down at Ghost Town. But typically, Kaosan Road's just that chaos. It's madness, and and there's all these little alleyways, and and near there is the Grand Palace, and and the National Museum, and a number of universities, and it's right on the river, and uh, and that's why like all these guest houses and hotels and, and backpacker places that have popped up there. But um, because of the university, there's lots of bars and restaurants and cafes and stuff too. So like. If you're going to update like travel guide content for an area like this, it just makes sense to to rent a room. Yeah, rent a hotel room or two and uh, <laughs> and just spend the whole time there. Yeah, because like all day and I was looking at a map here. I actually found I was on an old hard drive and I found the, my, my maps for researching and updating this. And just like 
like Kaosan Road is is one street, and then it's a soy rambu tree is the the soy that runs parallel to it. Yeah, that's right. Um, just that the Kaosan rambu tree area has a hundred and two guest houses and uh, and and bars and and restaurants of note. I mean, there's probably way more than a hundred restaurants there. There's there's probably up to a hundred. Rest, uh, just guest houses and bars. And, and oh my God, it's mayhem. Yeah. And I'm going to just side note, I'm going to put a link to our friend Joe Cummings, who was recently on talking about Mount Kailash, wrote a story for CNN about writing Kaosan Road into his first Lonely Planet. And there was two guest houses in it and two hotels. And it's a great article. Wow. So we'll link to that from the show notes too. Yeah, what a contrast. Because even the photo I'm looking at there with the 102, and that's just on the Kaosan map because there's like, mm-hmm. you know, when you get closer to the Grand Palace or, or you go up near like the Dusit Zoo kind of area, you know, over by the riverside, there's there's so many different areas around this. But like, so there's hundreds of hotels and guest houses I had to visit. And I visited every single one of them at least twice now. If you don't believe me, I recorded the GPS location of every single one. I got a business card from every single place. I got photos of like their rooms. I I got all the information that we needed to make sure the website was up to date and relevant, you know? And it's funny because a lot of these little hotels and backpackers, they're just like in the beach. Like it's like a bed with a, a plywood wall, you know? Like there's so some of these places are so basic and and cheap, you know, like a 50 bot room or something like that which is like two dollars and you know some of them are kind of nice and some of them are, are not so nice and and it's funny to to have to write a review of of like a little blurb even because how do you differentiate this place from any other place is it the smell is it the the nightclub downstairs is it like the alley is it the proximity to like the best pad thai noodle place and you do that all day and then at night you had to go and update like the nightclub so you're going to brick bar and you're going to dallas pub or, you know, in all these little alleyways, there's all these cool little bars and restaurants and clubs and stuff. And uh, I don't know, man. It's like it, it takes some stamina. This is why travel writing is is a younger person's game in general, because spending a, like an entire week on Kaosan Road and doing the Kaosan thing and going out to clubs every night and then doing hotel inspections all day is uh, it, it's a challenge. Not everyone can do it. You know, it's funny though. I mean, again, I did it twice. And then like a week later, two weeks later, I'd have to go to Silong and I'd stay in a, in a hotel or guest house down in Silong because I'd have to go and, and do all of that stuff. So it was kind of fun. So even while I was living in Bangkok, I, I had to like do little vacations around the city in order to, to update those areas of the city. Yeah, that's no easy job. And I mean, you've told me a lot of stories uh, about and while writing some of your guidebooks. And then, of course, we've talked to guys, uh, you know, like Nick Ray and Joe Cummings and some others we know that have written books. And it's no easy task because you're kind of like parachuted in somewhere. You have to run around. You have to collect a million pieces of content. Like it doesn't sound that fun or glamorous. It's funny, though. I was at we were I, I bumped into Nick Ray the other night. Uh, outside of a bar called the library, which okay. has like a bunch of books and, and like his book was on the bookshelf. And I was talking to this Irish couple that I, that, that I met down in camp pot playing beer pong with. And uh, I'm like, Oh, Hey, you know, like that book right there, my friend over there wrote it. And then we ended up sitting down and talking about travel writing and stuff. And I, I called Nick, the Tom Brady of 
guidebook writers. <laughs> Although Joe's up there too, man. Joe's the Joe's the Brady too. Yeah, I think he's Joe's the goat, probably. Uh, yeah, Nick Joe is, might be the goat, you know, but Nick's still doing it. Is my point. You know, he's like he might he be forty three years old too. He's still knocking him out. He's uh, he's probably more than forty three, and he still doesn't because he talked. He just spoke with us about writing the latest edition of the Lao guidebook. So, yeah, you're right. He's still in the game. Yeah, that Laos episode is a great one. So listeners, look out for that. My last story actually kind of gets pretty dark, and I'm not sure why I picked this one. The year was 2000, and I had been here for about a year in Thailand, and I was heading up to Mesot. So Mesot is a fairly major Thai center that's very close to Myanmar and shares a pretty prominent border crossing with a bridge. And I was there with a friend of mine, Donna Joan from Calgary, who was going to do some volunteer nursing work. So we stayed in Mesot for a few days, and I no doubt looked in a lonely planet, probably written by Joe Cummings, who I had not yet uh, read or not yet met, and kind of looked at what else is there around Mesot. And I read about a couple waterfalls, and then I read about this place called Highland Farm, which was a gibbon sanctuary, and it was 43 kilometers south of Mesot town. So my friend Don and I, we rented scooters and thought, okay, we'll, we'll head south of town and we'll check out this little waterfall and then we'll go see this highland farm and find out what this gibbon sanctuary is all about. So we get there and it's in a very rural setting and you can hear the gibbons singing. They kind of do like a woo-woo and stuff and kind of just walk in and there's nothing official. There's no welcome center or anything. And I sort of see this older foreign guy with a white beard walking around he kind of looks at us and introduces himself at some point but he's not super friendly he's, i mean he's he's working his name is bill bill Dieters, and i mean it's his life so he's out there he's cutting things he's doing work as we kind of follow him around and talk and then at a point his wife parani a thai woman i meet her in the shuffle seeing their place and i glean a little bit about the story he's american she's thai they met in los angeles moved back to thailand uh, I think in the early 90s for a quote-unquote quiet retirement, bought this piece of land in a very rural area. And one day a local Hmong, so Hmong is an indigenous hill tribe group, a Hmong guy brings a baby given and asks them if they want to buy it. And they do buy it. And then they only learn later that what happens is um, generally someone shot the, the parent out of the tree, takes the baby and sells it. Now they've got this given who becomes known as Chester and they care for Chester who it ends up later is actually a female, but they keep the name Chester. And as the years go by, they start to take in gibbons that they see maybe being kept in a cage somewhere and they convince the owner to let them take better care of it. And it grows and grows and grows to when I met them, I would guess they had about, you know, right around 30 gibbons or something, quite a sizable place. They're doing it all on their own out of their own financing, their pension and so forth. And then it must have been in less than a year, I go back and I stay there again. And then I go back and this kind of becomes something where I'm going a couple times a year. I took my then girlfriend at the time. Uh, my parents came to visit and I took my parents up there. We spent a few nights and kind of got quite close to, to Bill and Parney just in the space of two years. And I would take guests there from our, our travel company and, you know, we'd help out. We'd help clean the enclosure, serve the food three times a day and really became quite tight with Bill and Parani and someone named Rachani, who was was kind of their cook and cleaner. And she had a little three-year-old daughter and, and, and got to know some other guys that did maintenance work. And then it must have been either May 9th or 10th. And I got a call from my business partner's brother-in-law. And I was in Northern Thailand. And he said, hey, have you read the papers? I said, no, why, why? And he said, sit down. 
And so he proceeded to tell me that somebody had gone to the farm and murdered Bill and four other people at the farm. I was just couldn't really believe it. I mean, I, I, just to know someone who's been murdered, I think is weird enough, let alone someone you've met probably six or eight times. You've spent time at their house and you know people. And so I go out that night and one of the things, it still happens, but it was really big went back then is like, Thai papers would have pictures of bloody murders on the front pages and stuff. And they kind of blur out some things. And on the front page of all these Thai papers was this picture of Bill laying in a pool of blood and it's horrible blurred out. And I remember then realizing like, Ooh, man, if you know people and those kind of things, it's, it's, it's really insensitive. So as it turned out, uh, we found out that what had happened is a guy named Tui, who is their main kind of groundskeeper along with some others. And I had met Tui and just, few months before, Tui and I had kind of, you got to kind of hold down a gibbon if you're going to give it a bath. They don't really like it. But <laughs> he and I and Parani had bathed this gibbon. And yeah, I'd spent time around him. You know, he directed me how to feed the gibbons. He had been let go. And about a week later, he and two of his brothers went back to Highland Farm in the afternoon when they knew that Bill typically had his afternoon nap. And with the idea of stealing some guns, because they knew that Bill had guns and it's right very near to the Myanmar border in a very porous area. And I guess the theory was that they were going to sell the guns for cash. As a lot of simple plans go, they went in, they got the guns. And as they were leaving, Bill wakes up, they panic and they shoot and kill Bill. And then they realize that now other people have heard guns and they're going to identify us. So they then shoot Rachini, the cook house cleaner. They shoot her three-year-old daughter and they shoot a guy that's doing some welding and work there that I'd met and one other guy. So all of a sudden you've got, yeah, six dead people. And we went up for the funeral, which was just a few days later. I don't know how she does it, but Kun Parani still runs Highland Farm all these years later, 19 years later. And about two years after Bill's death, he died in May 10th, 2002, along with the other five. Two years later, Kun Parani was nice enough to do a sit-down interview with me about the murders, which I published in the Calgary Herald. And we'll link to that story from the website here. But, you know, she's somebody that uh, I'm still pretty darn close to. I, I speak to a handful of times a year. I haven't been up there in a couple of years. But, boy, do I admire her for somebody that just took a quiet retirement and started caring for animals, uh, unplanned and then lost her her husband and, and five other people and then stuck with it like how do you keep living in that house it yeah it's incredible it really blows my mind and she's kind of one of the strongest people i know so that's that's not a real happy note to end things on but uh it's certainly a travel tale man yeah maybe she's doing it for the gibbons as well right she still runs it as a gibbon sanctuary she is. She's absolutely doing it for Bill's memory and the given. She calls them her kids. And she's like, who else is going to take care of my kids? And and that is the truth. So she definitely does it for her kids. Yeah, because I saw them for my first time when I was in Sumatra in the wild. And, and they're just so amazing. Like they can run. I call it running, but they can like run through the forest, like swinging yeah. from, from tree to tree, like flying through the air before they grab the next tree. And they're huh. some of the most... And, and they're they're apes. They're not monkeys. Many people That's right. may not know the difference is they don't have a tail, and they're Correct. more genetically similar to humans. So, like orangutans as well, which are are, are apes. Yeah, and th they tend to be more intelligent and more compassionate and more kind of cool with people. That's like that monkey fight in the forest. I'm not a fan of monkeys, man. I no, we could do a whole episode on. We should do an episode just on all the the monkey stories go. that monkey yeah, stories. Great. All the 
funky encounter. So let's let's record that coming up for uh, an upcoming okay. episode. That's a great episode. Yeah. And you know, Bill always used to say he's like, "Don't call them monkeys; they get really angry." <laughs> and you know, and I always thought that's funny. He's like, "Monkeys have tails. These are much more intelligent than monkeys." So, anyway, you know, it's this was was a memorable episode speaking about, you know, Japan and some of these other places were great. And even though the final story is pretty dark, it reminds me how lucky I am to have met people like Bill and, and Rachani and, and other people and, and still be friends with Parani. Uh, remember again, one more time, Trevor and I do this out of the love of travel and the love of sharing it with all of you. Please help us keep it going. And you can do that financially by going to patreon.com searching talk travel Asia, and you can sponsor for as little a dollar a month. Our patrons get special little goodies about every two weeks. And actually we just recently recorded and shared an episode where Trevor told us about uh, recently spending about a week in Kampot along the South of Cambodia. So treat yourself to some extra content, sponsor the show. Trevor, thanks for introducing the idea of doing tantalizing travel tales for um why don't you take us out of this thing yeah thanks i'm glad we were able to share those stories with our listeners and kind of talk about some of the the old travel days as we mm. uh get ready to travel in 2021 which we discussed recently and just today i bought myself a motorcycle after having talked about motorcycle adventures with nick when we did the travel in laos episode and some of your adventures there in thailand so so pretty soon we might have some uh some gopro footage from the front of my bike that we can share with our patrons so we appreciate all of your support and even if you're just listening we appreciate you listening in and uh we'll be back in two weeks uh with the guests so thanks for listening thanks for joining us on talk travel asia we look forward to sharing with you again soon Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom and Camp